You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Hey, City on a Hill, Sam Lowe here, lead pastor of our Gold Coast Church. And it is my joy today as I get to continue as we work through our series in the book of Psalms, uh, opening with you one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 51. And so if you've got a Bible with you, uh, get it open to Psalm 51. And I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask that God would help us as we dig into this to understand what, what He's trying to say to us. So let's pray. 
Uh, Father God, we want to thank you that you're a God who speaks, that you're a God who wants to be known. Uh, and we want to ask that, that now as we sit in your word, that you would help us to hear your voice. Help us to understand what it is you're teaching us. Help us to be shaped by the truth that is in your word and help us to walk away from here different, more secure in your love, uh, more confident in our desire, more bold in our desire to live for you uh, and to walk in your will for us. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. How do you respond when you get caught doing something wrong? Uh, I have a five-year-old son named Hudson, uh, and he is what you'd have to describe as street smart. You know, some kids are just born and they already know how to go toe-to-toe with adults. They know how to argue. They know how to give you sass. It's like it's innate. You haven't taught them this. They just know what to do. Well, that's Hudson. And so we have lots of moments in our house where he tries to see what he can get away with. Uh, One of the moments that we've had to wrestle with recently is we've been teaching him that things like hygiene are important. So he's got a dad who's, you know, got terrible teeth from drinking too much soft drink, having too much sugar. Uh, And so I've been teaching him he's got to brush his teeth every day. But, you know, surprise, surprise, he's five and he doesn't want to. And so in our house, we, we often send him off to brush his teeth just before bedtime. And he struts off pretty confident, pretty happy with himself uh, and ducks off around the corner to where the toothbrushes are at the sink. Uh, and he stands there for a second and then he pops back out and he's like, I did it. And straight away, I know he hasn't done it. And so I call him on it. And so the problem with that is that he's been getting smarter about it as time has gone on. So now he knows when he goes around the corner, he's got to wait a little bit longer uh, or he worked out that he has to actually turn the tap on so that we can hear water running. So then we'll be convinced that he has brushed his teeth. But the, the kind of pinnacle of his cover-up for his wrongdoing is that he's worked out that instead of brushing his teeth, if he just gets a tiny bit of toothpaste, rubs it on his teeth, that when he comes out, the definitive evidence that he's actually brushed his teeth, is he's like, smell my mouth, smell my mouth. And we kind of lean in. And so then we're left with kind of no way to prove that he hasn't done it, uh, even though it's pretty obvious because, you know, parents know these things that he hasn't followed through on what we asked him to do. And even worse, that he's lying to us. But what's amazing is that even as a five-year-old, in the moment where I call him out for not doing what he said he would do, for lying to us about whether or not he's brushed his teeth, you can always almost watch the cogs in his brain start to turn. And as the guilt kind of hits him, he gets to make a decision. What am I going to do with this feeling of like, oh, I did the wrong thing? He can reach for option one, which is his favorite, which is deny it and cover it up. You know, go back, put some toothpaste in my mouth and, and try and pretend like it's all fine and I wasn't lying and it's all good. He can go for option two where just try and minimize it. You know, it's only teeth, dad, and, and I brushed them yesterday and, you know, it's not really lying. I was joking. And so just try and shrink the seriousness of the guilt. Or he can reach for option three and just take responsibility. He's done the wrong thing and he needs to apologize for it. Every now and then we do get there, but it's not as often as I might like. But the thing is, it's not just kids who operate like that. I feel sorry for those of you who are right now sitting in Victoria in slightly easing, but still lockdown conditions. And I'm sure that you were a little frustrated this week uh, as you read about one of your own, the, the media uh, personality, the Collingwood football president, Eddie Maguire, being up here on the Gold Coast uh, and enjoying just a casual night out at one of our nightclubs, the Pink Flamingo. Uh, it was hilarious watching Eddie backpedal as people were challenging him on, what are you doing? How can you do that? You've done the wrong thing. Now, just to be clear, he's not in a hub and technically he hasn't done anything wrong. He did his quarantine. He didn't break the law. But for those of you sitting at home, still stuck in Victoria, wishing you could come and enjoy the beauty of the Gold Coast, uh, 
what he did is not a great look. But see, for Eddie, when he was confronted and there was that moment of, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done this, he had the same process going for him. Do I take option one, deny it, cover it up? Do I take option two, minimize the seriousness? Or do I reach for option three and actually take responsibility? Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Well, it's Eddie McGuire, you guessed right. He reached for option one, but he found a new level of covering up. See, his excuse, some of you might've heard this, his excuse was, I wasn't just out for myself, I was actually there because of my role with Visit Victoria. Uh, he described it as a reconnaissance mission, visiting nightclubs on the Gold Coast to help you Victorians as uh, restrictions begin to ease and things open up. Uh, it's pretty impressive really to turn guilt into actually a virtue in that moment. But, but before we all jump on Eddie, it's actually not just my five-year-old son, it's not just him, it's not even just some of us, it's all of us. This is the choice that we have to make when we're confronted with the fact that we've done the wrong thing. Just recently, I had somebody confront me about the way that I had spoken about somebody who wasn't in the room when I was speaking about them. And my first reaction, it was like there was this pause in time and I could feel myself weighing and everything in me wanted to choose, deny and cover it up. Because I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be this, this good person, this holy person. If you're a Christian, if you're someone who follows Jesus, you know that, that we have this reputation that we're supposed to be the good people, that we're supposed to be the ones uh, who are kind of living and setting an example. And in fact, uh, one of the problems that a lot of people have with Christians and with the church is that they're these people who claim to be good, but live like hypocrites. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that one of the things that adds to those guilty moments is that pressure that not only did I do the wrong thing, but I shouldn't have done that. That I'm not supposed to be the kind of person who would get caught doing the wrong thing. I'm supposed to be the one who's holier. And in some sense, that's right. Because I mean, we started this series in Psalms back in Psalm 1, and we were told that blessed is the person who delights in the law of the Lord, the person who follows and submits to God's anointed king. And so there is a rightness that God wants obedience, but, but we've got that standard. What do we do when we fail? What do we do when it, it actually shows that we've done the wrong thing and that we're guilty? Is your first reaction to start to feel that mounting pressure? To hear even just in your mind the accusations of your friends but didn't you say you're a christian didn't you say you you know you're one of those good people aren't christians not supposed to do that sort of thing well psalm 51 is god's gift to you today for those moments of guilt maybe they don't happen that often to you but maybe like me you're someone who finds himself wrestling with the fact that I'm not the person I'm supposed to be. I'm not even the person that other people think I should be and crushed by the guilt and pressure of not living up to an expectation. Psalm 51 is God's gift to you because the reality is if you're a follower of Jesus, you're someone who's going to have to wrestle with failure. You're someone who's going to have to acknowledge that even though you might want to be a good person, might want to be somebody who reflects the Jesus that you follow, you're not always going to meet that standard. Now, Psalm 51 is one of the few Psalms in the Bible where we can pinpoint exactly what was going on uh, when it was written. It's right there in the title. You see it on your page. It says, To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Now, this is a story that comes out of David's time as king in the book of 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Now, I'm going to give you the shorter paraphrased version. Uh, but essentially what happens in this story is David has been king for a while 
and the entirety of his kingly rule has been war. He's been fighting against Israel's enemies. He was fighting to become king. And now that he's finally in the seat and he's kind of feeling exhausted. And so he makes this decision that this spring, instead of going out with the soldiers to battle, he's going to send the soldiers out under his, uh, under his lieutenants, under his uh, generals, his other commanders, and he's going to stay in the palace at home and just have a break. And so what happens is he's resting on his lounge and just gets up for a wander around on the palace roof, just enjoying the views from uh, this impressive uh, facility that he has to live in and relax in. And while he's there, he notices something. He notices that just a few streets away, there is this beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop. Now, you would think, you know, this is a moment for a bit of modesty. And you'd think King David, the man after God's own heart, would avert his eyes from, you know, what's in front. But, but that's not what happens. He, he, he really looks at this beautiful woman. In fact, more than just looking, he decides that he wants this beautiful woman. And so he sends his staff to go and find out about this woman. And they return and they say, look, that's Bathsheba. She's Uriah the Hittite's wife. And you would think, unlucky David, she's beautiful. You know, she was appealing, but not for you. But that's not what David does. David sends for her because her husband's off at battle where David should be. And so David sends for her, takes her into his bed, sleeps with her, and then sends her home. Now, you kind of think, you know, it's all done and dusted. It was, it was a little sin. No one saw it and, and it's secret. Anyone who knows won't tell. But then Bathsheba sends a message to King David saying she's pregnant. And you would hope that this is the guilt moment for David. This is the moment where he has to weigh up. Do I deny and cover? Do I minimize? Or do I actually take responsibility for what I've done? What does David do? He reaches for option one. His first response is, how do I fix this? How do I get out of trouble here? And so he invites Uriah back from the front line. He gets Uriah drunk at a special dinner. And then he says to Uriah, why don't you just go home just for one night and spend some time with your wife and then you can go back off to battle. But the problem is Uriah's got more honor than David does. And Uriah refuses to go and sleep with his wife and enjoy the comforts of home while his fellow soldiers are out in the fields, in tents, suffering. And so he sleeps at the gate of the city and eventually returns to battle. And so you would think, again, this is another opportunity for King David to make the choice. Do I deny and cover my guilt? Do I minimize it or do I take responsibility? And again, he reaches for option one. He can't trick Uriah into thinking it's his baby. And so he sends a message out to the commanders on the front line to have Uriah put where the fighting is fiercest. And sure enough, Uriah is killed. And then to snowball the guilt even more, when Bathsheba has finished mourning her husband, David takes her into the palace as his wife to make it look like this baby was actually legitimate, born in this new marriage. And isn't it great news? And let's all celebrate. And it looks like he's gotten away with it. No one knows. Uriah's dead. Bathsheba's now in the palace. She's part of the family. All of the messengers that have been involved in this whole process, they're loyal to the king. They're not going to blab about it. And so it looks like he's gotten away. It looks like he's escaped the guilt. But two people know what's happened. David knows what he's done. And more importantly, God knows what he's done. And so God, in his kindness, sends the prophet Nathan to confront David with his guilt. And Nathan doesn't walk in there and go, come on, David, look what you've done. You've got to sort yourself out. Uh, in, in the wisdom of God, Nathan tells David this story. It's a story about two men, one that's a little bit wealthier than the other. And this wealthy man decides to steal 
the poor man's sheep to feed his guests because he doesn't want to give out of his own money. When David hears this story, he's angry, he's livid. He gets like visceral reaction that he wants to see justice in this situation. And at just the right moment, Nathan turns the knife and he says, David, you are that man. You are the thief. You are the one who has taken another man's wife in amongst David's epic failure, in amongst David's repeated attempts to cover up and deny the guilt that he knew was there. Suddenly, he can't escape it. Suddenly, the guilt falls like a crushing weight. And it is in that guilt that David writes Psalm 51. It is in response to suddenly recognizing this inescapable failure that he articulates his heart to God. And this weight of guilt that God kindly puts on him through Nathan the prophet is just that. It is a gift of God's kindness. Because see, this is a revelation moment for David. This is finally the bit where he can't deny it. He can't cover his eyes. He can't pretend like it didn't happen or it doesn't matter. Finally, now he sees it is there. It happened. He did it. It's bad. And that God is not happy with it. See, guilt is this this gift, this revelation, this exposer of what is really going on. See, we avoid guilt because it's uncomfortable and we don't want to be reminded that we've done the wrong thing. But the reality is we know we've done the wrong thing. And guilt is the thing that says you've got to actually do something with what you've done. You've got to actually take responsibility for what you've done because there's no such thing as a hidden sin. Even if no one else knows, you know, and when we know we've done the wrong thing, it drives us to act in certain ways. Maybe to try and uphold this facade to convince people that we're better than we actually are. Maybe to try harder to be good, to make up for the hurt that we've done. I mean, look at David in this story. He knew what he'd done. And so he is driven to to murder. He escalates his adultery to murder just to try and cover it up. He's not taking responsibility for his guilt. He's not saying I've done the wrong thing, but his guilt is shaping his actions and digging him a deeper hole than he was in before. David knew that he was guilty long before he was ready to take responsibility for what he had actually done. And as uncomfortable as guilt is, it's God's kindness to us. Because in that guilt, we begin to see and understand what we are really like. Look at how David prays there in Psalm 51, verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, that's a confronting sentence. What David did was not out of character. It wasn't this moment where suddenly he behaved in a way that wasn't consistent with what he's normally like. He, you and I are all born, that is conceived in sin. We sin because we are sinners. Because that's our nature being normally expressed. And see, if even David can fail, David the king who's described as having a heart after God's own heart, David the king especially chosen by God, the anointed king, David the man with the faith to stand up to Goliath with a few uh, rocks and a sling, even he was always going to fail because his nature is sinful. 
Because who he is and who he was from birth is somebody who rebels against God, who rejects God, and it was always going to happen. No one knew how, no one knew it would look like this, no one knew how spectacular it would be, but it was always going to happen. And likewise, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to hear this. Your nature is sinful. Even as someone who's been forgiven, there's still bits of your sinful nature that are warring within you and you will fail when it comes to following Jesus. You will do things that you wish you hadn't done. You will chase things that you wish you hadn't chased. You will justify things that you actually are not okay with. And the issue of sin is not something that's outside of us that we can just cut off at the edge and get rid of. It's the overflow of our heart. And so guilt is God's kindness to help us see and understand who we really are. Not just what we do, but who we really are because our nature is not easily fixed. It's not just some behavioral adjustments we need to make. It's not just an increase of discipline that will change sin. If sin was just actions, then great, stop doing those things, but it's not. Sin is who we are, it's in our nature. And the second thing that guilt reveals, as well as showing David that this is who he is, is how sin even works. Have a look at verse four. David prays, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That, that's a really strange way to describe what we just heard about from 2 Samuel. I mean, remember what David's sin was? He committed adultery with a woman and he killed her husband and he forced a whole bunch of his servants and his staff to be part of that whole process. I mean, Bathsheba is affected by his sin. Uriah is affected by his sin. Bathsheba and his children will be affected by this sin. His servants are affected by this sin. So in what sense is David sinning against God and only God? See, this is really important. Sin is more than just an action. Sin is essentially a relational category. It has horizontal consequences. There are impacts in our relationships. It, it impacts us personally. It impacts people around us. But at its source is the posture, the attitude, the way that we actually engage God himself. I don't know if you remember back as we kicked off this series, we looked at Psalm 2 and Psalm 2 opens with these words. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, our natural inclination, every person ever, is to reject God and his law and to place ourselves in the position of ruler and judge to decide for ourselves what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, to try and avoid that guilt that we feel for doing the wrong thing. If I get to choose what's right and wrong, then anything I do becomes right so that I don't have to have that sense of, oh, I wish I didn't do that. See, instead of worshiping God as God, as creator, as the one who rules over everything else, we place ourselves at the top. And that one core decision that one core reality, that nature then flows out in a million different ways, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words. And guilt is God's gift to help us understand that He is offended by our sin. However that sin is expressed, whether it's adultery and murder like David, that is offensive to Him. 
Because in that moment, David is saying, I get to choose what is right and wrong. David is saying, you're not in charge, God. I get to sit on the throne. Whether it's something more culturally acceptable like greed or pride, in that moment as that is expressed, it's our heart saying, God, you're not on the throne. I'm on the throne. I get to choose. Now, that doesn't mean no one else is affected. Sin does damage to ourselves and to the lives of those around us. But because God is God, because he sits over all creation, because he is the one who all will answer to at the end of their lives, what he sees, how he feels, his perspective on our lives is the one that matters matters most. And this is why hidden sins matter too. The things you look at on the internet when no one else knows about it. The way you think about a particular person, even though they never find out that that's what you think. See, the problem with sin is not that people know that you did it or not. The problem with sin is that you know and God knows and God's not okay with it. God is offended by it. Guilt is his gift to you, his kindness to you, to help you see the parts of your life that are displeasing to him and that are damaging to you. That's in 2 Samuel, that's the language that it uses. It says this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I'm pretty sure that's the sanitized version of what it did to God. But but it stands that God gives us guilt as a gift that we might know what things in us are warring against him and doing damage to us. A number of years ago, an American pastor named Jerry Bridges uh, released a book called Respectable Sins. Now, the the premise of that book is exactly what it sounds like. It's this sense that we can rank the sins into the really serious sins and the less serious sins. And uh, somewhere along the lines that there became this kind of consensus. You go to different churches, you go to different Christians, and you do get a sense of the ones that we're really not okay with and the ones that we kind of just act like they're they're not a big deal. In fact, some have even flipped all the way to being virtuous. We kind of celebrate them. Those are the respectable sins. And so some we've always considered particularly bad. Adultery, murder, they're kind of not really up for grabs. Things like excessive drinking, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality. Those are the ones that you hear sermon after sermon about. You hear application after application about. And just to be clear, they are sins. They are things we need to repent of. They are things that we need to change. But But the problem, the flip side is, having created the serious sins, we also created the less serious sins. The sins that were, you know, kind of less important or or maybe even okay. Instead of Jesus being the standard that we had to meet, we started aiming for kind of middle class morality. We sort of started aiming for roughly where everyone else is in the church. And so the standard became, you know, not aiming for perfection or aiming for obedience to Jesus, but but it's okay if I'm just unthankful and I have no gratitude in my life. Or jealousy, that's fine, you know, that's, that's not a big deal, that's fine, just keep chipping away. Or pride or lack of self-control. We decided that even though the Bible and God has said those are things to be repented of, those are things to ask for His help with, that we would just kind of go, look, that's just life. That's just normal. And yet God gives us guilt even in those things that we consider acceptable and little that we might understand that in those things, just like in the apparently big things, what we are doing is offending the God who sits rightfully on the throne over all creation. Guilt is God's grace to King David and for us again today to look again, to not dodge the discomfort of guilt, but to actually take that guilt as a gift and to recognize that there are things in us 
that dishonor him and damage us and lead us to the place where we might actually take responsibility and do something about it. That guilt leads David, leads David to genuine <coughs> repentance. So now that he has finally embraced his guilt after running and denying and covering time after time, he owns it and he's left with only one option. If you are guilty of sinning against the God of heaven, then all you have is Psalm 51 verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, genuine repentance, when we come back to God, can't and won't minimize the seriousness. David doesn't say, look, God, this, it wasn't that big a deal, but, but it would be helpful if you could kind of take this off me. He sees the seriousness of what he's done and all that's left is to fall at God's feet and beg for forgiveness. He casts himself on God's character. There's no sense of entitlement of God, you have to forgive me. You're the loving God. Or God, you have to forgive me. I'm the king of your people. Or you have to forgive me. You said I have a good heart. Or you have to forgive me. Look how much I serve for you. Look how much I share the gospel with other people. There is no entitlement. He says, God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. The only appeal he has is the character of his God. And the prayer he prays is not just that he might have the punishment taken away. Have a look at verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David longs for more than forgiveness, not less than forgiveness, but he doesn't want to just avoid the punishment that's coming his way for dishonoring God, the punishment he deserves. He wants his heart purged and cleaned and sin blotted out. He wants a heart that is so transformed that he won't end up back in this same place. He doesn't want to be a repeat offender. He recognizes that the problem with sin is what it does to our relationship with God. He prays, cast me not from your presence. He says, hide your face from my sin, but not from me. The joy that David longs for is the joy that is his when he's in the presence of God. And this is why sin is so damaging to us. If we minimize it, if we pretend like it's not serious, if we pretend like it's not there, if we just fail to confess it, we hold on to sin in our life, guilt, things that we have done wrong. What it does is it eats away at us and steals our joy. It makes it harder for us to see God's presence and his goodness to us. It's not that God changes. It's not that God wanders away and is distant. But when we're holding on to that sin and that guilt, we find ourselves less willing to come to him in prayer, feeling less worthy to open his Bible as if somehow this new thing I've done will change his mercy and his grace to me. See, when we hold on to it, we do damage to ourselves at the same time as dishonoring the one who is inviting us to confess, who says to us that his grace is sufficient. So you've got to remember this psalm is being written by King David, the King David who wrote a bunch of the psalms, who knew God intimately, who delighted in his presence, who was like the worshiper par excellence. He loved praising and spending time with his God. He delights in God's presence and steadfastness. 
He knows who he's praying to. And in his failure, he knows more acutely than ever that he's not worthy to call this God Father. He's not worthy to come to him in prayer. But see, this moment of guilt, which could have been a moment where he began to doubt God's love for him, where he might have wondered whether God was actually going to still stick with him and persevere with him, is transformed into this opportunity to empty his hands of any kind of misguided basis for being confident in the presence of God. God is stripping away any sense of in David that says, hey, God needs me or I'm entitled to go to God. It doesn't matter that he's king. It doesn't matter that he was chosen. It doesn't matter what he's done for God. It doesn't matter about battles that he's fought. None of that matters when it comes to entering into the presence of God. See, genuine repentance means coming with empty hands. See, the guilt enables us to see that our hands are empty, that those things that we used to think were impressive, our service, even our obedience, our mission, our witness, whatever it is that you think you bring when you come to relate to God, guilt helps you see that that is worthless. Genuine repentance comes empty-handed and appeals only to God's mercy and God's steadfast love. I mean, David even recognizes explicitly, sacrifices add nothing here. Verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Catch that just for a second. This is King David who oversees the tabernacle, the tent where the worship of God and the sacrifices happen. He's the guy who actually asks God, can I build you a temple like a proper house where we can do worship and do sacrifices? He is all about sacrifices. And yet here in this moment of guilt, this moment of being crushed, he finally recognizes that no sacrifice can deal with the sin that he holds before God. No sin can can help him, can transform who he is as somebody who is rejecting God and opposed to him. And so he comes having failed, he confesses his sin, he's empty handed. And the amazing thing is that's exactly what God requires. In fact, not just requires, desires. Have a look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, because David lets go of this illusion that he's the king, that God needs him, that he's somehow impressive as he stands before God, as he lets go of the delusion of I'm good enough, lets go of the superficial kind of pretense that we cultivate so that people look at us and think how holy we are. Only as he lets go of that, does he find something better. Only with empty hands is he prepared to take hold of the approval that his heavenly father offers and the freedom that is his through the mercy and grace of God. See, what God longs for in us is hearts and minds that see and own our guilt. He doesn't want us to live crushed in guilt. But he longs that we would understand we're guilty because only when we see our sin and failure and rebellion and come empty handed, will we realize that we need to cast ourselves on his mercy. Will we begin to taste his kindness? See, if we have proud, defensive hearts, we reject the grace he offers. If we deny and minimize our sin, we run from the grace that is, that is ours and is offered again. And we are left to carry the burden of guilt on our own incapable of doing anything with it except for pushing it down and hoping no one else finds out. 
1 John in the New Testament says this in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. David knew that sacrifices weren't enough this time. He knew that God had promised something better than the sacrifices that that Israel was doing as worship. He knew that God was creating a way that he could be washed and cleansed, cleansed permanently, that he could be forgiven. David knew that God was getting ready to do something that would finally and fully deal with his heart issue, his nature issue, the root cause of his sin. We know that something is Jesus. 1 John continues, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, let me tell you, when you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, when we come empty-handed... When we come knowing our guilt, acknowledging our guilt, owning our guilt and cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus, we are washed, we are cleansed, we are forgiven, we are restored, we are loved, we are adopted and we are brought into the family. We are securely God's because of Jesus' death in our place and his resurrection to new life. See, when we come with empty hands, with our guilt and with our shame, he lifts us up. When we confess our sins, he fills us not with guilt, not with hopelessness, but with joy, the joy of his presence. And he releases us to walk in obedience to him securely, knowing that we are loved on our good days and our bad days because we're not loved because of us, but because of his great mercy. Because of his son, Jesus, who takes our penalty. I joked at the beginning that if you've never felt guilt as a follower of Jesus, you either haven't been following Jesus for long uh, or you're just not very self-aware. But in all seriousness, the Bible tells us that we all fall short of the glory of God. In 1 John, it tells us that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all sin. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, It could be that as we've explored this psalm and heard David's story, that there are things that you're holding, that you've been minimizing, that you've been trying to cover up, that you hope no one else finds out about. And maybe today God has kindly been pressing those things and you've been feeling guilty. You've recognized maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time you're willing to admit it, that you need the grace and mercy of God that is offered to you in Jesus. Well, in just a moment, we're going to share in a meal called the Lord's Supper. This is the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night that he was arrested, the night he was betrayed. And this meal serves to remind us what Jesus has done. It reminds us that he gave his body, he gave his life to take our punishment, to take our place. It's a a physical expression. Eating and drinking the bread and the wine is a physical expression of the repentance that is articulated here in Psalm 51. And so it's not something to be done lightly. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to sing a song together first. And I want to encourage you as we sing to, to ask God to show you what it is that you need to hand over to him. 
to show him the things that you've been denying or minimizing or covering up. Ask him to help you see. And when we come back after this song, we're going to hand it over to God using the words of Psalm 51. And we're going to eat and drink together to celebrate the power of Jesus to not just take your guilt and shame, to not just forgive you and wash you clean, but to bring you into God's family as a precious son or daughter. So take this time as we sing to ask God, God, what do I need to hand over? Whatever ways God is pressing on you today, whatever things that you're beginning to feel that that guilt in and for in your life, now is the opportunity to hand them over to God. And so we're going to do that by praying the words of Psalm 51 together. We're going to put them on the screen as we pray. So let's, let's hand over to God and let's confess to him. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God is gracious and compassionate. God loves to forgive those who humbly repent and confess their sins to him. In Jesus' death and resurrection, there is forgiveness for all who come to him in repentance and faith. And so hear the promise and take hope in the promise of 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that in your love and mercy, you gave your only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our salvation. By this offering of him once and for all time, Jesus made a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and commanded us to continue a remembrance of his precious death until his coming again. Hear us, merciful Father, and grant that we who receive these gifts of your creation, this bread and this wine, according to our Saviour's command, in remembrance of his suffering and death, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. And just like David in Psalm 51, repentance doesn't stop with guilt. Repentance is the process where we hand our guilt over to God and guilt is replaced with joy and praise. And so let's finish our time together time today celebrating the kindness of God to us and celebrating the forgiveness and life that was purchased for us in Jesus' blood. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.